Okay, shalom everybody, welcome back. Uh, this class has been sponsored and dedicated, number one, by my dear friend Dan Waknin, in memory of Batsheva Bat Eliyahu, a blessed memory, and in the memory of Dvorah Fega Bat Shmuel and Menachem Mendel Ben Elchanan, in the merit, in the schut of Rabbi Nachman Ben Fege, may they all have an aliyah of the Neshama, Bezat Hashem, and the Neshama should be up there with the Tzadikim. Um, just a quick insight on this concept from Rav Nosen, something unbelievable. Why it's so important that a person do their best to be connected to Tzadikim and how it helps them, especially after this world. The, the verse reads in, in Psalms, in chapter, I think chapter 15, if I'm correct, 15, 16, Ki lo ta'azov nafshi lisheol, lo titen chasidcha lirot shachat. King David says, Ki lo ta'azov Hashem, you won't abandon me, you won't abandon my soul, lo ta'azov nafshi lisheol, to the lowest level of hell. Hell has seven levels, seven names. Sheol Tachtiot is called the lowest level of hell, it's called Sheol. So King David says, he's saying on behalf of the Jewish people, Hashem, you will not abandon my soul to the lowest level of hell. And then the verse continues, Kama, Lotiten Chasidecha Lirot Shachat. You won't give your Chasid, your righteous one, your, your, the one who is charitable, the one who is a Chasid in your eyes, to see Shachat. Shachat, I think, is the sixth level of Gehenam. It's or even before that even. It's above Sheol. It's another term. It's, it's another one of the seven levels of hell. And it's called Shachat. So King David is saying two things. You will not give my soul to go down to the lowest. You won't abandon my soul to, to the lowest level of hell. And you won't give your Chasid to even see Shachat. So Rav explains like this, unbelievable. He says that if now a Jew, as bad as he is, as crooked and corrupt and perverted as he is, and still he's attached to a tzaddik, in this world, let's say, he really connects himself to a tzaddik, and this person, because of his own personal deeds, he's deserving of Gehenam, of going to hell, He's deserving of really being low and, and lost and everything, okay? So they spare him from hell. Even though he's deserving of hell, they spare him. Why? Because he was attached to a tzaddik in his lifetime. If now this person is thrown into hell, the benefit of being attached to a tzaddik is that after a person dies and passes on, and he's, he's the, what's it called, he's destined and determined, and the, the Beit Din, the, the heavenly court ruled that he has to go to hell, the tzaddik has to go in to get him out. <laughs> he has to go into hell to pull him out. So hell, heaven, they don't want to expose such a righteous one, such a chassid, to even see hell. Because he's so righteous, they don't want him to see hell in the first place. So they spare the person who is deserving of hell. He is, in his own actions, he's deserving of being doomed to hell. But because 
of his attachment and commitment to it, following the teachings, following belief, having minimal emuna, faith in the tzaddikim, the, the righteous ones, who are, King David is calling chasidim, chasid, the chasid of Hashem. Hashem spares these people in the first place from going to hell. So the, re- the verse reads like this, Ki lo nafshi Hashem, you will not abandon my soul, my soul to go to the lowest pit of hell, even though I'm deserving of it. Why? Why will you spare me? Because I'm connected to the tzaddik, the chasid, your chasid, your chasid, chasidecha, and you love him, and you don't want him to see hell, and if you throw me to hell, he's going to have to come in to see, to come in to see in order to get me out. Because the, the, the end of the verse is the reason. Why will you not throw me into hell, the lowest pit of hell? Because you don't want your chasid to even see even see the level of shachat, which is above shel tachtiyot, to pull me out. So you spare me in the first place from even going to hell. And Rav Nosen writes this as an example why it's so important that a person, as upside down as they may be on their own, and totally crooked, and the person feels... I am for sure, God forbid, deserving of the worst gehenam, the worst punishments. Look what I'm doing in my life. Look what I've done. Look what's happening to me. All these crazy things a person feels, okay? So, a person feels upside down. However, if he has a modicum measurement of faith in tzaddikim, that stands by the person. Even, it's like, it's like a, a green card. In Hebrew, we call it protectia. You have a green card access by being connected to tzaddikim. You would say, is that fair? Is that right? The answer is, that shows you the greatness of being connected to tzaddikim. That it helps you bypass many difficulties in this world also, but especially in the next world. You have many connections in heaven to pass it. You say, well, where's the fairness? Other people are being punished and burnt in hell and everything. And they say, a person who was with them, who well, you were with us when we did these things, when we all the, you were with us, and you're not in hell with us also? So what's his secret? Ah, I had faith in Tzaddikim. I had a, connect, a minimal connection to them, and I showed it through how I give charity, through traveling to Tzaddikim, through believing in their power, asking them to pray for me, whatever. So that came as a major payoff. And that's what, King, that's what Rav Nosen explains that King David is saying here. This is the greatness of being attached to tzaddikim. Uh, one more teaching about this, because it's so important to emphasize. Someone once asked Rav Nosen, who's greater? Someone who's very big, prominent in the Torah, let's say, but he's not connected to tzaddikim. Or another little Joe Schmo, a little guy, who's very like tiny in his Judaism, in his greatness, but he's connected to a tzaddik. Who's greater? So Rav Nosen said, as an answer and an analogy, that when constructing the tabernacle in the desert, so the Jews had to bring their donations for the tabernacle, the materials, the gold, the silver, the copper, the wood, all the times of, of, uh, of dyes and, and, and sheepskin, uh, the wool, whatever was donated to build the tabernacle, right, had to be brought to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, and then it was accepted as a donation. So that means even a person who brought like two coins, two tiny coins, but he brought it to Moshe Rabbeinu, 
it became part of the tabernacle, became part of the Mishkan. However, someone, a big shot, like Korach, let's say, he would say, I want to bring a million pounds, a million kilos of gold, but not through Moshe Rabbeinu. I want to bring it directly on my own, directly, and it should be part of the tabernacle. It wasn't accepted. It had to be brought in through Moshe Rabbeinu. So Vanosad pointed out, a little guy who's connected to a tzaddik, his donation, his input, even though it's tiny, it has much more mileage, mileage plus, right? You have mileage points, much more, much greater, even though he's tiny, but it goes, has a lot of much more investment of mileage than the other guy who's big and prominent, but he doesn't believe in tzaddikim, he's not connected to tzaddikim, so he may be doing a lot of devotions, but it's not going as far as the little guy, the little pisher, who, ha- who gives a little bit and it goes all the way. This is the importance and the greatness of connection to the tzaddikim. So, we have a lot to talk about tonight. Let's hope we can cover ground. I wanted just to first uh, speak about the importance of tomorrow, tomorrow night. In other words, uh, Thursday night, Friday this year, which in Hebrew is the date called Chaf Sivan. Chaf Sivan, the 20th of the month of Sivan, is a very unfortunate historical importance in date for the Jewish people. It's the day marking one of the biggest pogroms, one of the biggest slaughterings in history, aside from the Holocaust, which was more recent, but within the history of the Jewish people in exile, Chaf Sivan marks one of the biggest pogroms that took place in the year 17, uh, sorry, 1658. In Hebrew, they're called Tach Vetat, the, the two years, 1658-1659, which in historical terms were called the Chmelnitsky massacres, that over 100,000 Jews were killed, specifically in the region of Eastern Europe. We're talking about more specifically in Polish-ruled Ukraine, where over 100,000 Jews were killed within a small matter of time. You would say, you know, whoopee-doo compared to the Holocaust. Six million Jews in the Holocaust, you know, were killed. What, what, what significance is it for us today to commemorate such a date? You know, we had even worse atrocities that happened. So they say, historic Jewish historians, I'll even quote one, Rabbi Beryl Wine, he brings down in his book, that if Khmelnytsky, this uh, Cossack and his men had access to the machinery and weapons that Hitler and the German, the German Nazi regime had, they would have killed much more than 6 million. With the, the, they killed 100,000 people just with you know, swords, spears, arrows. 100,000 Jews were killed just with minimal basic weapons that were common for, the, for, for thousands of years before before guns came out and bombs and, and, and machine guns and everything like that. So if they had access, there would have been much more serious. For that time, 100,000 Jews being killed were they express in the writings that the rivers were flowing with blood. So many Jews were being cut and killed and the bodies were just lying down all over that the, the blood was oozing into the rivers. They say the rivers of Nemirov in the Ukraine were flowing with blood. That's how many Jews were killed. So till today, in certain Jewish communities, some even fast, 
like half a day, even today, and they recite uh, special like dirges, slichot, to be added in the davening, in the morning prayers, on the day of the 20th of Sivan, okay? So that's what happened historically, and there's a bit more depth, we're going to try to go into that also, why it's so, so significant, the 20th of Sivan, it was explaining now, it marked a major changing in attitude of Torah study. To explain, before that, this is the year 1658, before that, in the early 1500s, after the Spanish Inquisition, that was the time of the revival of Kabbalah. The Arizal became prominent in the 1500s. Okay, we're talking about approximately a bit over 100 years before 1658, uh, uh, right? In the 1550s and before, we can take that, you can look historically where exactly the Arizal fit in in that time period, was the Renaissance of Kabbalah in Sfat. We know stories of the, the Ramak, Rav Moshe Cordovero, <clears throat> and especially the Arizal. So there was like a new wave of learning Kabbalah. And because it was technically a new wave, so the traditional Torah scholars throughout the world were very hesitant to accept the Kabbalah, to accept it openly that people now are learning Kabbalah officially. Until then, people who knew Kabbalah was kept totally secret, no one knew, it's totally undercover. But at that point from the Arizal, from Rav Moshe Cordovero, it became like official, openly, that there is Kabbalah learning, and it's available. Of course, you have to be ready to learn it, that's for sure, but now it's more accessible. So the Torah scholars at the time, especially in Eastern Europe, were afraid that this would sidetrack people big time. This would lead to false Jewish leaders. This would lead to people to, God forbid, turn from traditional, you know, construct, straightforward Torah study of Halacha and Gemara and the Talmud and deviate to people to become so spiritually oriented that they'd be like flying, like hippies, you know, up in the air and not grounded. So the Jews of Spain, which were a lot, it was a big Jewish community when there was the expulsion from the Spanish, due to the Spanish Inquisition. So the, the Sephardi Jews, from connected to the Spanish Inquisition, who were hit with such a makkah. You have to realize what happened in Spain was a big disaster. Because Spain at the time, until that time, until 1492, was one of the biggest centers, if not the biggest centers of Torah study in the entire world at the time. Even bigger than in Europe, than in France and Germany and Eastern Europe. What was happening in Spain was unbelievable. Torah study was prominent. Even little children at the time, they were very advanced. And they went advanced, advanced. They even went into philosophy. A lot of Jewish philosophers were from Spain. And they bring down that this was the downfall, that they went into philosophy, but it was so deep in Torah study, right? It was so powerful. And then this big makkah, this big hit of the, of the expulsion of the Spanish Inquisition, we're talking about a big amount, like hundreds of thousands of Jews, not a small amount, who were exiled, spread, like scattered all over, all the way to Asia, okay? Sephardic Jews ended up in Iraq, 
in Iran from the Spanish Inquisition, okay, North Africa, parts of Europe, they were spread out and they were unstable and they needed a main consolation. So when this Kabbalistic Renaissance took place after the Spanish Inquisition, the Sephardic Jews of Spain, many of them were more open to accept Kabbalah because what Kabbalah does, it gives you spiritual explanations, deeper meanings behind what the Jews go through at a Kabbalistic level, and in this sense serves as a consolation of joining emuna with Da'at, to join faith, you know, it's a test when a person is being expelled and a person goes through many difficulties so there's the, 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 the Da'at, the, the knowledge of the Torah but there's the emuna, the faith behind the message of the Torah that keeps a person going you imagine a Jew went to the Holocaust, God forbid how do you expect them after losing their whole family to hold on and to continue to believe in Hashem if not for emuna, that they hold on with emuna, that even though they see in their front of their face destruction, but they believe that Hashem is behind this and it's only for the good. It's two opposites. That's that's emuna, that you see a contradiction. You see in front of your face one thing, and with emuna you believe that it's not what I see, it's really something else. That's the whole idea of emuna, that you don't see it, right? They, the, the, the secular people, they say, no, seeing is believing. If you don't see it, then we don't believe in it. So Judaism is the opposite. That emuna is called blind faith. I don't see it, but based on the ideals of the Torah, what the Torah gives me to, a way to think, it gives me the strength to fuel my emuna. so I believe and I can bypass the difficulties and the tests of life with faith, okay? Kabbalah, learning, was meant, or the, at least with the hands in the, in, the, in the perspective of the Jews of Spain, it served as a major consolation. The deeper teachings behind what's in the Kabbalah gave them a consolation to hold on in the Galut, more or less, in the, in the, in the exile, especially the expulsion. And that's why it was taken with open arms. Because as much as they were fluent in Halacha, Torah law, and Poposkim, and Gemara, Talmud, they needed that extra boost of Torah study to now enhance their Muna. They saw that it wasn't enough. Even after that, they fell, they had the Spanish Inquisition, etc. East, East European Jewry were less quick to accept Kabbalah. That's why you find in Jewish history that when the Arizal became famous like wildfire, his fame spread very quickly in the world, and many sages of Eastern Europe were very afraid, and they even thought of putting the Arizal and his teachings on Cherem. Cherem means ex excommunication, that he shouldn't be accepted by the Jewish world. So it took time for Eastern European Jewry, who said that this is going to deviate from tor normal Torah study, which is learning Halakha, as it's devolved from the Talmud. To go all the way from the Talmud, Mishnah Talmud, to go through what's called the Rishonim, the, the early commentaries, and as, as it's developed into the Acharonim, and then to come to the finalized Halakha, to go from the Mishnah to the Talmud, Rashi, Tosfot, Rambam, Rosh, Rif, Ran, Rashba, all these names, Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu, Yehu, Rabbeinu Yonah, etc., to go through the transition 
from the beginning of the Mishnah all the way to practical halacha, how to say brachot, how to keep Shabbat, kashrut, etc. And to delve, because there's so many details, when someone enters the world of the Talmud, of the, of the, of the Gemara, and in and halacha, it is so amazing. It is so... There's no expression of the life, the chayut, you have when going into learning, even today, when learning Mishnah Bura or Kafachaim or going to all types of poskim, there's amazing what's called in Yiddish a Gishmak, an amazing chayut, an amazing uplifting feeling. People who are outside of the world of Torah have never experienced such a, an amazing feeling when entering the world of the Torah, of the Talmud, the Gemara, and the world of Halacha. It's, an, it's a world in itself, and it's an experience. Fine. So that was considered to be standard mode of Torah tradition and acceptable and enough okay so they were worried that now if people get into Kabbalah and very very mystical and very spiritual they will leave the grounded attitude of Torah study which for sure without doubt is the main key for Torah transmission and Torah observance. Even Rabbi Nachman says that, that the most important learning of a Jew is to learn halacha every single day of their life. Fine okay so they were afraid of that However, over, it took about approximately 100 years. One second, please. It took about 100 years when the Khmanitsky massacres took place in, in 1568, 1569. And when that happened, all the Jewish people in Eastern Europe, everyone in that region, they closed their books and they fled. It was so scary, it was so, it was like much worse in a sense than the Spanish Inquisition because these people here, the, the Khmanitsky and his Cossacks, they were just killing left and right. They were just out to kill Jews left and right. Men, women, children, there are historical uh, sightings of the terrible, disgusting things they did to the Jewish people, cutting up their bodies and limbs and running over them giving Jewish women to eat their children, you know, cooked. It was disgusting what happened. Like all the curses you see in Parashat Bechukotai and, and Parashat Kitavo, <laughs> there was actually, unfortunately, lived. So there was no time to learn. All the yeshivas were closed. That's it. No learning. And the Jews were on flight. Jews, 100,000 Jews were killed. So you can imagine how many others fled. Okay? It was a big, big devastation for the whole Jewish world, and for Torah Jewry. Torah, Torah study was interrupted big time. From that point, it became clear that something deeper was needed to console the Jewish person through the, all the persecutions that they go through in the Galut, because just plain Torah study in itself, in its dry format, as, as gishmak, as lively as it is, would not be enough to console the person of all the challenges that they go through in life. They will need something deeper from a higher perspective to enhance their emuna with this level of that in order to keep on going. But not at the expense of not learning any more Talmud and Halacha. So you see that after the Kaf Sivan, 20th of Sivan, which marked the beginning of that massacre that took place, the world jury, including now the Ashkenazi European, Eastern European world jury, began to accept the teachings of the Kabbalah and incorporate them in Halacha. That's why you find the commentaries who lived after or during the time 
of the Chmanditsky massacres of 1568, they began quoting the Arizal, the, the Kabbalah, the teachings, and as an opinion in Halacha that is valued and important till today. Okay? So this is the significance of this date, Kaf Sivan. Now, a bit more about it. When uh, that date, before that date arrived, okay, the sages of that t- time, 1568, they found indications from the Torah, from the Zohar specifically, if you want to say, that that was supposed to be a year of redemption. So word spread throughout the Jewish communities that Mashiach was supposed to come in that year. Mashiach was supposed to come in the year 1568. Okay? So not only did Mashiach not come, and they brought proofs from the Torah, so many Jews all over the world were anticipating the coming of Mashiach. Going through even regular pogroms and regular difficulties, and living life in Galut is not so easy. Even us today, as comfortable as life may seem, with technology, nice couches, nice cars, nice houses, and more or less people are not starving like, like they used to be, God forbid. People have basic food, basic sustenance, basic clothing. People are more or less physically much better. Health conditions and medicines and doctors have advanced compared to what it was 100 years ago. So life physically may be getting still better. There are still people who are sick and this, but it wasn't as bad as it was like 100 years ago, let's say. So physically, life could be getting better, but emotionally and mentally, people are really going out of their head. Many people are going wacko, going nuts, and painful people are going through depression and all types of crazy things. So because of that, we always are looking for Mashiach to come. We're waiting, we're panging, you know, we have birth pangs for Mashiach to come, even today. So that's always been there with the Jews in exile, that they're suffering. There's a type of physical and and spiritual and mental and emotional suffering which pushes Jews throughout history in exile to be yearning non-stop for Mashiach to come. So even back then, in 1568, the Jews were yearning so much for Mashiach to come and the rabbis found proof in the Torah and the Zohar, etc. that Mashiach will be coming that year. So many people were anticipating Mashiach. Rav Nosin writes, not only did Mashiach not come, but tremendous destruction came to the world. Look how many Jews were killed. So Rav Nosen writes, this connects to what Rabbi Nachman warned. Rabbi Nachman was very against rabbinical sages who try to bring proof of Mashiach's coming on a specific date. It's called the Mechashvei HaKetz, Mechashvei Kitzim. Those who take time calculating when Mashiach will come, even in the Gemara, the Talmud in Sanhedrin, there's a whole list of sages that they bring calculations, and then one or two sages, they go and say, stop doing this, this is not good, this is not the way Mashiach is going to come with all these calculations, and they curse those who are mechashvekitzim, those who calculate dates. But still, because of the pressure and exile, sages throughout try to find sources. So they found the proof that in that year, 1568, Mashiach will come. So Rav Nosen, quoting Rabbi Nachman, he brings down that Rabbi Nachman said, this ruins it. When a person, when a big, like an outstanding figure brings proofs from the Torah that Mashiach will come on a specific date, they ruined it. They ruined it. Mashiach will no longer come on that date. 
He may come before, he may come after, but he will no longer come in that date. In Rabbi Nachman's time, the sages at the time brought proof that in the year 1810, 1810, the Hebrew correspondence year, the, year, the Hebrew corresponding year, the Jewish corresponding year to 1810, they found sources from the Zohar again that Mashiach will come. And Rabbi Nachman said at the time, he was still alive in 1810, right? He said, Mashiach won't come in 1810. They ruined it. He may come before, may come after, but he won't come in that year 1810. Because, why is that? Mashiach has to come unexpectedly. The salvation has to come, and the Gemara brings us down, that Mashiach comes what's called Behesachdat. It comes when it's unexpected. When you're not looking, that's when Mashiach comes. The salvation of a person comes when he's looking elsewhere. Because when a person, what's the, what's, the, what's the problem here? When a person is focusing, focusing, focusing on, oh, Mashiach's coming on this date. So you're focusing on this and not on what you're supposed to be doing. Because what really brings Mashiach is Shuva and Masim Tovim. Tshuva, repentance and good deeds. That's what really brings Mashiach, right? So when a person now shifts his attention, there's a date. So it doesn't matter how I behave and act, Mashiach's going to come anyways this year. That's great. So I can put less emphasis on working on myself and more emphasis on the consolation. Oh, Mashiach's coming, so I can act like I want, right? So that's what ruins it. The lacking of people to devote themselves that's the difficulty. That's why Mashiach can't come when you're focusing on the date. Because you lose focus on where you're supposed to focus, which is on working on yourself to become a better Jew, which is always, that's always the work. And that's what for sure brings Mashiach closer, is the more you try to do good deeds. That's what's going to speed it up. Bezat Hashem. Fine. So when now a person is deviated from that, by focusing on the date when Mashiach comes, so Mashiach no longer will come on that date. He has to come, like the Gemara says, Besach in the year 1840, which corresponds to the year Tavresh, the sages of the world, they brought proof from the Zohar, where it said that in that year, Tavresh, the gates of wisdom will be opened. So they used that as a source that Mashiach will come in the year 1840. Rav Nosson, who passed away in 1844, so four years before he passed away, he said also he will not come in this year. He may come before, he may become after, but on that year he will no longer come. What happened instead was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That's what was discovered. It started in the, the year 1840, started discoveries, which began to speed up to what we have today, the unbelievable boosts of technology, which all began speeding up from the year 1840. But going back to Tachvetat, the Chmanitsky massacres, he warned Rav Nosin that Mashiach didn't come, but instead... He had, the, the light that had to be revealed came in a different format. He was, de he was destined to come, yes. Let's say that he was supposed to come in the year 1568. But because the Jews were not ready yet, because they shifted their attention, so not only did Mashiach not come, but another thing was required in order to bring a Kiddush Hashem, a, a, a enhancing a sanctification of God's name, and that came about through the big amount of Jews that were killed. You know, whenever Jews are killed, they die because they're Jews. That's called Mishe Neheragal Kiddush Hashem, someone who's killed sanctifying God's name, right? Even a secular Jew, if God forbid he's killed because he's Jewish, that's called dying on Kiddush Hashem. And there's a special 
Gan Eden. There's a special reward for those Jews who are killed on sanctifying God's name. Even if they weren't the best people, because they had the merit to die on Kiddush Hashem, they have a very, very special reward. Uh, they say like this, I remember hearing from Rav Michal Dorfman, that Hitler, he didn't care if a Jew wore Rashi Tefillin, or if he also wore Rabbeinu Tam Tefillin, or if he didn't wear Tefillin. Hitler, you, you were Jewish, that was enough to kill a person. That was enough. There wasn't like, oh, he, he's wearing Rabbeinu Tam Tefillin, has a higher level, whatever. By Kiddush Hashem, if a person is killed, even a secular Jew who's not religious, and he's, God forbid, killed because he's Jewish, there is a very, very special reward for that. So Rav Nosen brings out that this was what was needed to, to compensate for Mashiach's not coming in that year. One Rav, the Apta Rav, Apta Rav was a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov, he brought a very special hint to the greatness of this day, Kaf Sivan, and he said it's hinted to in the verse, warning about the severity of the damage of Amalek and how Hashem wants Amalek to be blot out. The verse reads, Ki yad al kes ya mechemet l'ashem ba'amalek midor dor. Ki yad al kes ya. Hashem's as if to say hand, he swears, Ki yad al kes ya. Hashem as if swears on his holy throne. Ki yad, for the hand, is al, is on the kes. The word kes is from the word kise. It's the first two letters of the three-letter word called kise, chair. Hashem's hand is swearing on the throne of also half of his name, yud ke. Ka is the first two letters of Hashem's four-letter name, yud ke vav ke. So ki yad al Hashem's hand is swearing on his throne, the throne of God. And why is it written half? Why is kis written not kes and not kise, a chair? And why yud ke ka and not yud ke vav ke? And why not Hashem ado? Right? And Rashi brings down because Hashem's throne and Hashem's name are not made complete until Amalek is wiped out. Ki yad al Hashem swears on his own throne that what? Milchemet l'Hashem ba'Amalek. Hashem's war against Amalek will be from generation to generation. That and we have to work and work until every generation to work on blotting out Amalek until he's totally blotted out, totally, totally destroyed. And Hashem swears that this is how that he's going to have to be blotted out eventually, totally. And he swears to it on his holy throne. Okay, so they bring the Apterav. He brings down. Take a look at this verse. Kes Kaf Samech stands for Kaf Sivan. Chaf is 20, and Samech is the first letter of the month of Sivan. So Kes is a hint to the 20th of Sivan, and Yud K is a hint to another day. Which day? Yom HaKippurim. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is hinted in Yud K. Yom HaKippurim, Yud K. And he says that this is the hint that the, the, the Kaf Sivan was supposed to be such a great day of Mashiach's arrival. As great as like the revelation of Yom Kippur in the Beit HaMikdash, where for every Jew, the climax of the year, the highest day of the year of, you know, fear and awe and trepidation, at least that's how it should be, right? Yom Kippur is considered the most severe day of the year, a fear of God, 
of the greatness of God because it's going to be a day of atonement, of cleansing. Okay? So it's, it's a day of cleansing. It was supposed to have been a day of cleansing with Mashiach's arrival as equivalent to Yom HaKippurim. And it didn't happen, so through all the slaughtering of the Jews, it was activated a sanctification as great as Yom HaKippurim. This is just to signify the greatness of tomorrow night, of tomorrow night, of, of Friday, the 20th of Sivan, and how it plays a role in Jewish history. We can now shift off to just another concept that Rav Nossin goes into, which is connected a bit to what we've been spoke, speaking about these past classes. And it's an oral tradition that Rav Nossin heard from Rabbi Nachman. Rav Nossin heard that Rav Nachman, he said, orally, like he said to him, orally, obviously, and when we say orally, that means it wasn't recorded in the standard conversations and teachings of Rabbi Nachman. You have books which Rav Nossin recorded, all the conversations and Torah teachings I heard from Rabbi Nachman. The main one is called Likute Moran. Another book is called, in English, Rabbi Nachman's Wisdom, Sichot Haran, The Conversations of Rabbi Nachman. Another book is called Chaye Moharan, The Life of Rabbi Nachman. In these three books spread out are the conversations and teachings of Rabbi Nachman. You also have two other books, Rabbi Nachman's Stories, Sipur Masiot, and another book of Jewish aphorisms called Sefer Hamidot, the Aleph Bet book. These are the books containing Rabbi Nachman's teachings. Rav Nosen, in his writings, included another teaching which wasn't put in after it was left oral. And it's like this. The Rabbi Nachman explained how is it that you have Gdole Hador, big Torah luminaries, Torah giants, that there are days when they're totally into davening, totally into serving Hashem, they're totally connected in a big level, and then the next day they're not. Or in the same day itself, that they're in and out, in and out, in and out. That one day they're really devoted, another day they're just dropped and dead. He said, where, where does that come from? So he said it comes from that there was a certain nation, an impure nation, who came, and the influence of that nation causes these big righteous, these big special individuals to have major ups and downs in their devotions. That they're not what's called consistent. They're not, they can't make it every day to be on time for davening. They can't make it every day to be into the davening. It's one day in, one day out, one day in, one day out. It's due to the impurity generated from a nation. He didn't specify who. And he goes on to say, however, the true tzaddik, the true tzaddikim, they're spared from these ups and downs at that level because these true tzaddikim are found at the border. They're not exposed totally to the impurity of this nation. They're on the border. So because they're on the border, on the sfag, it's called the, 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 the dock of this nation, so that's what saved them, the big tzaddikim, from being in and out, rather they become fixed and consistent in their Torah devotion. There's a lot to say about this, but one thing that comes out is that the greater you are in Torah and learning and everything, the more you influence and, beca and become influenced by general ramifications taking place to the Jewish world. That's a, that's, this is a teaching from the Torah, that the tzaddikim and the leaders of the Torah, of the, the Jewish people, they're in a way like an atonement, they're a kapara for the Jewish people. 
So what they go through reflects what's happening to the Jewish nation. So because in this case here, that the Jewish world was exposed to the impurity of this nation, so it affected these big Torah giants, that in their devotions, they had major challenges that they're in and out, in and out, in and out. So there has been an oral explanation, what, what, what's the details of this little thing here, this little teaching here, this oral saying, teaching from Rabbi Nachman. So they explain like this, in the name of Rav, Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz. Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz, he lived before the time of Rabbi Nachman, he lived in the late 1700s. He was a major disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. He lived at the time when the Ukraine became a part of the Russian Empire. Just a little bit of history, a little bit, that Ukraine was under the Polish regime, the Polish Empire, for centuries. And always there was, there was give and take between countries trying to annex and trying to conquer uh, Ukraine, because Ukraine is a very big chunk of land. The Ukrainians were always under the rule of other foreign regimes, foreign king kings. That's why the, the, always the, the, like the Khmelnytsky attack was a revolt of the Ukrainian Cossacks against the Polish Empire. It's like throughout history they were always revolting because they couldn't stand being under foreign authority. There are times also that the Austrian Empire was able to take part of, of, uh, of uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was able to take part of Ukraine, Poland, but for the first time ever, the Russians conquered, took the entire or the big chunk of the Ukrainian region where the majority of the Jews were found. That was called in historical terms the Pale of Settlement, a whole big area containing at least a million Jews in, in central Ukraine. You know, the, 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 big, the center where, where the Baal Shem Tov lived, etc. That's where Torah also was time in, at, at a time prominent. All the big halakha codifiers, they lived in that region also. The Bach, etc. So, uh, that time, the late 1700s, was when Poland, uh, Ukraine became a part of Russia. And of Pinchas of Koretz, he said that until then, Jews were not to be found at all in the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire did not want Jews in their borders. That's why when the Jew, you, you, Ashkenazi Jewry, throughout their exiles, shifted from France and Germany eastwards, towards Eastern Europe, they hit as the wall Russia. They never went into Russia. They went fa maximum as far as Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, that's about it. But into Russia, at that time, Jews were not allowed. So there wasn't any Jewish blood, Jewish existence, Jewish intermingling in societies of Russian, of Russian societies at the time. So when Russia conquered the Ukraine for the first time, and they entered the Ukraine, so the Rav Pinchas of course says the day the Russians took over the Ukraine, it was the first time the Jews, at such a mass level, over a million Jews, were in close encounter, close confrontation with a nation that had no Jewish taste at all to it, nothing. So the exposures to such an, uh, an impurity was so severe, and this is a very hard thing to understand this statement of Rav Pinchas of Koretz, he said that even that day that this took place, even Jewish children in their baby cribs experienced like a sexual impurity. 
an emission, a, a pollution. It's hard to understand a, Jew, a child in a baby carriage. What's going on? But he said it could be an expression, a guzma, a very over-exaggerated expression. It could be, I'm not sure how to properly understand this oral tradition. But the point being made, there was such an impurity exposed to the Jewish people on that day. And they explain in breast of circles that this is what Rabbi Nachman meant. That you have Gdole Israel, you have Jewish leaders, that they're in and out in, in their devotions, that they're not fixed in serving Hashem, that one day they're totally in into davening, they come on time and they're able to daven and pray and learn and everything, and next day, crash out of it. It's due to the exposure of such impurity of such nations. In other words, because they're, they're in the, the realm of Judaism, exposed to the impurity, so that caused them to be in and out, in and out, in and out. And the rest of the teaching, however the tzaddikim, the true tzaddikim, who are totally involved in Kedusha, they remain on the border. They don't go into that, that section. They stand the other border, meaning what? The border between the realm of the Jewish world and absolute holiness, they're there. They're grounded there, so they don't have such extreme ups and downs like that. In context of what we spoke about all these past weeks, if you remember, we, we said there are like three categories. There's the section called Lashon HaKodesh, the Holy Tongue, which is pure. Uh, uh, to say absolute purity is not yet there, because we explained why it's not. There's what's called holiness purity, which is the, 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 the realm of the Holy Tongue. There's the middle section called Targum, Aramaic, which is the admixture of good and evil, good and evil. There's an admixture there. That's where the challenge is in life. And there's the realm of the 70, the nation, the, the 70 languages of the 70 nations, which is considered entirely impure. So you have three sections here. In this context, the, the, the Jews as a whole are considered in the realm of Targum. That's the struggle of being a Jew, that we always have to fight fight the box the boxing match to sift out the good from the evil okay however this realm is influenced or by the 70 the 70 nations the evil impurity of the 70 nations or from the holy tongue as a jew we strive to join the targum the realm of aramaic the inter intertwingling the 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 realm that's the admixture of good and evil to try to join it with the holy tongue. If you remember, we said this is the idea why it's so important that every Jewish male every week do the parsha, read the parsha twice in Hebrew, once in Aramaic. People don't know about this, but it's a it's a halacha requirement. It's a requirement of every Jewish male before Shabbat, ideally on Friday, to go over the entire parsha to read each verse twice in Hebrew and once in Aramaic. What that does to you is it joins your struggles of the entire week, your Aramaic, your ups and downs, your good and evil that you're going through, to join it with the holiness so that it's uplifted. So the good is sifted out, and that the good in the Aramaic comes to complete the holy tongue. That's what I said earlier. It makes an a, a, a absolute, that's a, again, it's a hard word, but an absolute completement, a, 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 a complete completion of the holy tongue is made when the good of Aramaic, of the admixture of good and bad in your life, is joined with the holiness. As opposed to that if now the total evil of the 70 nations, they try to elevate the, the bad in the Aramaic, so it takes the Aramaic Targum and joins it to the other side. Okay? So in this analogy, Rapinchas of course, to explain, 
the Jews as a whole are considered in the realm of Aramaic. The Jews of the Ukraine, let's say the million Jews of that population, they were like in the category of Aramaic, Targum. When the Russian Empire became exposed for the first time, so the impurity had a major negative influence on the Jews as a whole. And Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman, of course, is saying that's, that's the idea of, of, of sorry, Rabbi Nachman explains that this idea that you have Jewish leaders, they have major ups and downs. It's because of the accessibility, the close proximity of the evil of the 70 nations onto the Targum, on my Aramaic, on my good and evil, arousing the evil in it so that in my struggle, there's big extremities. One day I'm davening like an angel, the next day, I loaf off and, and, and fall off the path like a, like a priest. I really off. That's because of this close proximity. The true tzaddikim, however, they're able to take the targum and join it with the holy tongue. That's the true tzaddik who doesn't have such exposure. What this means for us is that when we see in our, our lives that the ups and downs in being a Jew become too extreme, become unbearable, I can't, we say, I can't go on like this. Hashem, I cannot continue like this, that one day I'm in, and next day I'm totally out. I can't continue. Give me basic Judaism that I can continue every day, just to be a simple Jew. Enough that one day I'm davening, and then six days I'm in bed, I can't do anything. Enough of this. It's, it's too extreme. You can't live like this. We can't run a family, run a life. To be a Jew, can't advance if it's too extreme, the ups and downs. What's this indicating? That the person's Aramaic is too overly exposed with the evil, the, 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 the pure evil, the complete evil of the 70 nations. A person has to check in their life, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing obviously something which is opening up direct channels, direct pathways to the evil of the nations and making it that my ups and downs are too extreme because I can't continue like this. You can't advance every, if, if it's one step forward and then 10 steps back. For every step forward, I go back 10 steps, so I'm never going to advance. It's like going just a little bit forward and then I pushed back. So <laughs> what use is it to me go forward if I'm just always going back? As opposed to where a person has ups and downs, ups and downs, and he looks back after 10 years and he sees, wow, I really advanced. I really made a big change. That's where his, his, his Aramaic, his, his admixture of good and evil, is connected to the holy side. Because the holy side always is a rule. Mida tova meruba. The good always has an upper hand in life. You know, people are very negative, which doesn't make sense. How could it be that such negativity is covering up so much light? The Baal Shem Tov would say, that the evil is like a tiny coin. Tiny coin, the size of a tiny coin compared to the good, which is like the size of a big mountain. So you have in front of a person a giant mountain, okay? How could you cover up the entire mountain in front of a person with a tiny coin? If you take the tiny coin and put it right in front of the person's eye, right in front of it, so it blocks the entire mountain. Crazy! crazy. The reality is the mountain is much bigger. But because the close proximity of the little tiny coin right in front of the eye is able to block off the entire mountain from the view. So a little coin, which is like the Yetzirah, he's little compared to the mountain of goodness. But because of his close proximity, he's able to make a person feel, to make it seem that the evil has the upper hand. And what's crazy is the majority of people in the world 
They're negative. Meaning what? This tiny coin has such a crazy influence on people to block off the mountain. There's so much good out there. It's a mountain of goodness. You don't see it? No, I don't see it. My life is miserable. A person's always <laughs> negative. And it's a tiny coin right in front of the eye. It's unbelievable. So what's needed is to distance, to now remove the proximity of the coin, remove, in our, in our, in our analogy here, to remove the proximity to the evil of the 70 nations and to work on being closer to Lashon HaKodesh. This connects to what we said at the beginning of the class, why it's so important that a person, even though they are as they are, to work, to work consistently, persistently, to try to come close to tzaddikim. Because the tzaddikim are the ones who are mastered the holy tongue. That's the idea of a tzaddik. He's kadosh, he's mastered Lashon HaKodesh. Yosef HaTzaddik is the classic example of a tzaddik, who is this, who's the symbolism of the holy tongue, right? Because uh, that's, what, that's what Yosef HaTzaddik told his brothers, you see me as viceroy in Egypt, but tell my father, kifi hamedaber alechem, that it's my mouth speaking to you directly. When you go back to tell Jacob, that I'm, my father Yaakov, that I'm still alive, when you go back to the land of Israel from Egypt, and you tell him I'm still alive, I'm still alive. Tell him, My mouth is speaking to you. Rashi says on the spot, that he spoke the holy tongue. So you think, what we do? He spoke the holy tongue. He grew up. He was a child. He learned the holy tongue. So the point is that even though he became viceroy of Egypt, such a land of impurity, because Egypt was considered impure at the time, right? Nevertheless, my mouth is the mouth speaking to you in the holy tongue. He's the master of the holy tongue. Fine. So, so the idea of the holy tongue of the tzaddikim, me with my challenges, I present Aramaic. I have to work as much as I'm upside down. That gives me more of a reason to, to work to come close to tzaddikim. Rabbi Nachman says in Likute Moran Lesson 30, you would think that if that's the, you know, it's enough that I try to be as close as possible to my local rabbi. Why do I have to kill myself to find such big tzaddikim? You know, it's enough if I have my local rabbi at Chabad or whatever, local teacher, he should be enough for me. Why, do you, why are you pushing me to go, no, you have to go extreme and find the biggest tzaddikim at the caliber of Yosef HaTzaddik, at the caliber of Moshe Rabbeinu. Let me be happy with my local rabbi in my shul. He's a tzaddik for me. So he teaches Rabbi Nachman. That when a person is regular sick, he goes to a GP, a general practitioner doctor. You go to the regular family doctor. When God forbid a person is really, really sick, so he goes to a more experienced doctor, a more specialist doctor. So too in spirituality, in Judaism, when a Jew feels minor sickness, he feels, I'm more or less okay. So for him, he's happy with a regular rabbi, a regular tzaddik, that's enough for him. But a person who really feels the pain of their distance from Hashem, they feel very far, and it bothers them. It bothers them how far they are from Hashem. So such a person will strive to look for the specialist. I'm going to the big doctor. I can't now just take my regular rabbi and be satisfied with that. I need really, really a big, big tzaddik to help me. This is the idea of a Jew who's going through his struggles of Targum, and it's exposure to the impurity of the nations, and it's driving him crazy, driving him nuts, that he has such in and out in life. You know, Hashem, 
let me just be grounded. So, so like we said, like at least function, functionability in my duties and that I can at least be consistent in my davening and in my Torah study and to come closer to you instead of in and then out to such an extreme and getting nowhere, and not just not getting nowhere, but going backwards. Help me, Hashem, open my eyes how to block off my connection to the evil of the 70 nations, like the Russian Empire coming to the Ukraine, you know? So what's needed is to go to the opposite side, to try to look to connect my Targum, to find these big luminaries, these big tzaddikim, who can really shine their holiness into my life, so that their holiness elevates my good, the good within me. It's in me. It's innate. But it's just covered up because of the admixture of the good and evil, good and evil. The little coin is no longer a little coin. It's so close, it seems not just half-half. It seems to be the majority to get that scenario out and to have exposure to goodness and that the simcha, so the Jew can be happy with themselves and be happy with their good points. Rabbi Nachman talks about finding the good points and then being happy with the good points, right? So this, for that, we need... Kirva, closeness to big tzaddikim at that caliber of Yosef HaTzaddik, like we said, that represent the holy tongue. These are the true tzaddikim, that they, their influence can shine upon us. Okay, uh, I see there's questions, but time is up. Um, how do I answer a question here? Okay, yeah, let's see. There was a question here, how do we answer them? Someone can guide me in this, because I really don't know how to do this. Maybe it's here. Here we go. Let's try this. If that worked. Okay, it didn't work. Unmute. More. Okay, I'm sorry I don't know how to do this. Nice. Hi, Robert. Thank you. Okay. All right. So the question is, because one of the problems that I encounter around is that ultimately the leaders that we see end up being what Rabbi Nachman said these mass leaders trying to sell pedal stuff and keep us in this endless loop without ever being able to connect to our own inner subject and then we get caught up in this whole business of making money through the teachings of the sages and we lose the actual power of empowering each one to to connect with their higher self <laughs> which is their own subject and the, the key thing here is why why you know like why why are we still doing this when things are so bad right now you know it's not fair anymore. It's not acceptable anymore. And we make them feel bad because they don't come every day to, to follow some rules that Rabbi Nachman and Baal Shem taught us. Clearly, that the simple faith of the simple people is much more important than any of the rich tools of the scholars or any of the learned or anyone that's going to ever tell you that they're doing it better than you. Don't follow that advice. Because what you do simply with your heart is the highest sacrifice anyone can and why do we get caught up in this loop? <laughs> That's the test, my friend. Rabbi Nachman warned about that itself. This is the test of, of finding true leadership. He says to find the true leadership, you have to pass through a lot of false leadership, in a sense. You have to go through that until you come to the right address. It's not so easy. A person has to do a lot of davening, yeah, a lot of searching. Direct, I'm addressing you directly with the organization that you're uh, fronting. Is that this point is applying to this class to you right now? Why you're saying to people that they suck because they go in and out to follow that they gotta do more of this, more of that? It's the same thing. Teach them how to connect with the heart, be happy, 
And that was just the, the, the punchline. And that's a whole concept of the whole teaching. Yes. Go back to indoctrination more than the actual liberation of the soul. Okay, I hear what you're saying. You're 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 explaining basically what I spoke about, right? I'm making I'm making it apparent that what Nachman was speaking was of what's happening today to all of us. Yes, exactly. And we're blaming the other nations, but it's in us. We're pointing fingers, and it's in us. And our hard work would be to come to terms with that. But to come to terms with that, we need guidelines. You agree, we need to hear a source to push us, to keep on going, to motivate us. Right? That's a tricky part. Again, motivated to connect to your heart or to follow certain procedures that might not even work for those guys. If we just follow our heart, our heart can take us on the wrong path. We need the Torah to ground us how to guide the heart. Balance. balance. Exactly. Balance. But it's, we're lacking. We're lacking too much of that right now. Where again, people need to feel bad because one day they made it to the synagogue and seven or six other they didn't. Or people shouldn't feel bad in 2000 and whatever. Because you feel bad about it. Right? So the tzaddikim are there to push us, to help us focus on the good. To focus on the good in the struggle. We are the tzaddikim here. We're, we're in the end of days. We're here to be. <laughs> Okay, I don't, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell If you're saying that, I don't know what to tell you. I just know that the average person needs a teacher. It needs a guide. It's from the sages. If the attitude you're telling me now is, you don't need a tzaddik. You're on your own with Hashem. You don't need a rav. That's what you're telling me now. That's what I understand. Correct? You take it to extremes, but the point that I'm trying to paint is that Yes, everybody needs to learn. Everybody's a teacher. You can learn. If you don't have the Torah, you can learn it from an app. Okay. Well, well, okay. Everything should be teaching you. You should be learning from anything. If I'm closed up, only to a guy that looks like you. It's <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. We need Hashem, Moshe, and the Torah. It's Moshe, Hashem Emet, Moshe Emet, and Torah To Emet. It's three levels. It's Hashem. The tzaddikim. Don't you have Moses in your soul? Don't you have a piece of Moses in your soul? Of course, but in order to bring it out, you need a guide. Period. Because it's easy to be misdirected. Easy. Especially today. Who was Moses' guide? Hashem. Exactly. That should be your guide and everybody else. Let's teach I have no comment. I, I, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. We don't need, we don't need distributors. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't know how to tell. You. I don't know how to answer your question because you have to accept something about faith in tzaddikim. Maybe follow this up, if you have a chance, to look in the book "Crossing the Narrow Bridge," the chapter called tzaddik. You have the book "Crossing the Narrow Bridge." I think. I think you have it. Rabbi, we sorry. We actually just removed them from the. Okay. Fine. Can I post my uh, WhatsApp number for people who want to contact me? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how to do this. One second. Uh, one second here. We'll just do this quickly. It's an American number. Here we go. So it's 1732. I hope you can see this on the screen. 800-1863. Here you go. I hope that can be seen. Uh, that can't be seen. Sorry. So I don't have to post it. Okay. I said it at least. Thank you for joining. And may we have faith in Sadiqim.
And uh, I suggested follow-up is to take a look in the book Crossing the Narrow Bridge under the chapter called Tzaddik. That will give you... Uh, what this gentleman was asking, you can take a look a bit, a bit more why it's so fundamental that a person has a Tzaddik. And it's, okay, you have a Tzaddik in yourself. <laughs> but you need a teacher. Moshe Rabbeinu was, was on one hand rec- receiving directly from Hashem, but before that he received also from his father Amram. He received Torah from the sages who were in Egypt. It's all just like an unbroken chain. There's a chain here from all the way from Adam down to Noah, from Noah to Avram Avinu. There's a transmission. Shem, Ever, etc. There's a transmission that Moshe Rabbeinu had just that when the revelation of Hashem started, that was already after Moshe Rabbeinu was established. He didn't see the sneh at the beginning, the sneh, the burning bush. He didn't have that at the beginning of his, uh, of his, of his uh, life. It took place when he was ready for leadership. Then Hashem began to reveal himself to Moshe Rabbeinu. Thank you for joining and Bezat Hashem to be continued. God willing, have a beautiful week, be strong, and please be in touch. All the best.